to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm Bea Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's series has been all about promoting social change with communities and people living and working within urban informal spaces. Over the last three episodes, we've learned a lot about how researchers and scientists and supporting organisations connect with communities and people in urban informal settings so that change can be instigated and health and well-being can be improved and governance actors can be held accountable. What we've heard less about is how the research methods such as photo voice and creative methods and the data collection from working with communities is turned into action. So we have the pleasure today of connecting with our co-host Robinson Karuga to hear more about that. Hello Robinson, it's been an absolute pleasure to co-host with you over the last three episodes and now we have a chance to understand your own experiences as from being part of the Arise project, working with urban informal uh, settlements and the communities and people that live there to improve accountability for health and well-being. So we're quite keen to hear from your side of things and we've not had a co-host as a guest before, so this is brand new. So let's start by um, saying hello, Uh, I hope you're well today. And then just remind us of the work you've been doing around photo voice that we heard about in episode one. And let's explore a little bit about your involvement and how that work has moved forward. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Kim, for having me again. Uh, it's been a very rich journey since uh, the last time we had this podcast. Uh, so today I'll share with you the, the steps that we took after the photo voice and how that's going on. Uh, but first, let me just. Uh, do a very quick recap of the of how we started the photo voice journey. Uh, so we started by uh, working with community groups and governance actors in two urban informal settlements in Nairobi, uh, where we <clears throat> brought together uh, you know a team of governance actors and community members themselves to collaboratively identify groups that are most vulnerable uh, and marginalized in the informal settlements. Uh, So after much deliberation and participation, three groups were agreed upon uh, through consensus by uh, within both informal settlements. Uh, These were older persons, persons living with disabilities, and children heading households. Uh, so after that, we worked with community health volunteers who <clears throat> who know these settlements very well and helped us to identify uh, you know, participants who would take part in this particular exercise called Photo Voice. So once we selected uh, participants uh, uh, in, in these two settings, uh, we also got core researchers in one of the settings uh, and uh, you know, empowered them on how to use photo, uh, f- uh, phones for, uh, for photography and how they can tell their stories using photographs and also uh, really emphasized on ethics uh, in photography and, and, and safeguarding. So once we had the photos going, uh, we would 
occasionally pop in to just uh, provide supervision and just provide any support uh, if if our participants and core researchers needed any uh, and and would have weekly sessions where they would take discuss the themes of the photos they retook for that week. So for example, in the first week they'll take a photo on uh, what does marginalization look like and how do they feel about these marginalizations on the uh, that they experience on a day-to-day basis and in the third week they would probably take photos and talk about what recommendations they have uh, for governance actors to resolve their day-to-day experiences of marginalization. So it's been a very intense and rich journey uh, in this photo voice and I'm glad to say after that we were able to you know share the findings uh, of this photo voice exercise with governance actors and I'll be happy to take you through that exercise um, in the next few minutes. So yeah, so that's that's a very quick recap of how we did the photo voice. That's great. And and thank you for helping us to understand that. And it's really interesting that you brought governance actors and community together to try to understand those priority groups and the efforts that you went to to make sure that you really were reaching the people that quite often didn't have a voice. Um, We've heard throughout the series of Connecting Citizens to Science a lot about the methods that are used to capture stories, but we haven't heard much about what happens after that. How does it instigate social change? So once you collected the data and analyzed it, what happened next? Oh yeah, this is one of my most memorable points in the in the photo voice uh, research. <clears throat> so after we we shared the, fi- the 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 findings from our analysis with the governance actors and the community members, so we we used those particular those particular sessions to discuss you know what are the key issues uh, that they would uh, relate to based on the photo voice exercise, and you know how they go about prioritizing and and or, or picking the most important or the most urgent issues so after showing uh, or, or sharing the the photo voice feedback and this was done by the participants themselves those who had taken the photographs uh, we went through them together with the community members and they listed about 10 key things that needed to be addressed within their, uh, their, their within their settings uh, so from those 10 things, we again partnered with, uh, with with the community members and the governance actors. And then just to be uh, to be a bit more specific, uh, those who participated in this exercise were A, the participants who took the photos. We invited community, uh, civil society organizations that work in the informal settlements. We worked with uh, community-based organizations that had specific addressed specific issues within these informal settlements. We brought in the chief and the village elders and a few community health volunteers. So uh, I, I would I would say that one of the priorities that they identified was mental health, and that came up from all the discussions around the photos that had been taken by. Uh, by our participants and and the core researchers. So uh, once they, they we all agreed on what uh, on mental health uh, because that was the biggest uh, priority for them, we again now asked them to help us identify who would be best placed to address 
uh, some of these issues. So again, working with the the, the community level uh, governance actors and the community, we identified uh, a team uh, within the community uh, that will drive this agenda forward. Uh, so and. Uh, the, the, the term that we're using at the moment is a term that we borrowed from quality improvement practices, and we are calling them work improvement teams at the moment. So uh, the, the community members uh, identified a work improvement team, which also includes some of the uh, participants uh, uh, who are marginalized. So it was very interesting because uh, the participants were able to share their voices using photo voice. And now here they are at the table, uh, prioritizing and uh, addressing uh, the challenges that they identified through photo voice. Uh, so one of the key things that we did, uh, or we worked with the community members uh, to address this priority, uh, which is mental health, was to conduct what we call a root cause analysis. And again, uh, we worked with them to enhance their capacity on how to do a root cause analysis. And here we use what we call the fishbone technique. Uh, <clears throat> using the fishbone techniques would identify what are the bottlenecks that uh, and what are the main challenges around mental health. So some of the key things that came up uh, were, you know, we didn't have a curriculum for mental health, or rather they were not aware that there was a curriculum for mental health at community level, uh, there were the community health volunteers did not know uh, how to identify mental health issues or where to refer to. And another key thing that came up was they didn't have any health information management tools to capture any data uh, related to mental health. We then worked with the police because the police were also invited. And, you know, when they listened to the discussion, they realized uh, you know, maybe some of the crime issues they were dealing with, such as violence, would have been triggered by mental health challenges. So we also identified uh, with the community members, the police as potential uh, recipients of uh, sensitization on mental health. Uh, so we, we worked with the community members and the sub-county level uh, uh, health managers to identify uh, facilitators or mental health uh, from the Ministry of Health who came to the site and sensitized our community health volunteers and primary healthcare workers on how to identify, record, and refer uh, community members who are experiencing mental health challenges. So, yeah, uh, it was really fascinating to see that trajectory all the way from photo voice uh, from photo voice to problem identification, root cause analysis, and now they're actually uh, implementing and uh, delivering mental health solutions in the informal settlement. So our main role here as a researcher so is to provide coaching uh, on how and providing technical support on how to go about the referrals uh, for mental health uh, and just you know just giving them moral support. Uh, as they go about this. Let me also mention that we, uh, using photovoice again, we, 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 we worked with a sub-county level health management team, uh, which is also a very key resource for mental, uh, you know, for addressing some of the mental health issues that were identified. 
So we're also working with them as a work improvement team uh, so that they're able to, again, monitor and uh, use health records for making decisions for addressing mental health issues. Yeah. So it's still unfolding and, yeah, very interesting and uh, rich journey that we are going through. And we're also learning a lot through this process. So, yeah, great question, Kim. Thank you so much. I was trying to write down all the different steps in this in this process. It's quite easy to understand, but I can imagine there was a lot that had to be thought about in order to implement it. I wonder if I could ask you, in that workshop where you had these extremely marginalized populations come together with governance actors, civil society, chiefs, village elders, um, and even the police, how how was their confidence in that setting um, to share their stories? Yeah, so initially, uh, and this is natural, we identified a bit of power dynamics uh, at the beginning of the workshop, uh, but then we we use some power, uh, you know, so we use some approaches that, uh, you know, sort of balanced or we made sure that people left their identities and their their power uh, conceptions or how they perceive themselves at, outside the door. So we used our power analysis technique and uh, that way we're able to now talk as peers uh, because, you know, once you have the participants and the local chief and the police, uh, power issues play out. So power dynamics was the very first thing that we had to address uh, in in this meeting. Uh, But of course, it took a while for our participants to, to be able to speak out. So I would say that was the second level of, uh, of, of this process where Initially, they were not able to speak out, but then with time, as we continued engaging, they were able to, again, get a voice. So uh, I would say that the, the, it's a process. I don't, that's one of the key things that we are learning. Uh, empowerment and you know, participation of marginalized persons in governance is not an end in itself, but it is a social process. Of course, uh, taking into account the context, taking into account the power dynamics and uh, the different actors that they're dealing with. Thanks very much. And it's useful to know that you have considered power in the process. Um, And uh, a project that uses this participatory action research type approach or quality improvement approach is so important to consider power as well. It sounds like you've learned a lot through the process. Could you share with our listeners some of the main learning points that that you've discovered from going from that data collection to presenting it, priority setting, right up to developing this brand new intervention? Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the key things is uh, I've I've learned things about uh, sustainability. I've learned how to be able to promote sustainability of... uh, these uh, accountability processes. And one of the ways of establishing this is to work with already existing governance structures. So uh, in, 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 in the informal settlements that we're working on in Nairobi, uh, we did not establish or did not work with uh, government actors to establish new work improvement teams. Instead, at community level, 
we brought in existing actors uh, such as the local chief, the elders, and uh, after addressing the power issues, we were also able to incorporate uh, the, these marginalized persons, and that 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 has really helped in uh, giving a voice. And we know even after the end of a project, uh, this five-year project will be able to uh, sustain that, because uh, now the key issue here is how do we embed some of these practices or uh, you know practice of governance actors incorporating the voices of those marginalized people. So uh, strategies for uh, sustainability is a key lesson for us uh, because even at subnational level, uh, what we call the duty bearers, we worked with existing health management uh, teams, uh, say for example, addressing mental health issues. So that way we know uh, even if the project ends, the this structure will remain beyond Arise and will continue with some of these uh, initiatives. The second key thing we learned is that we have to be adaptable when we are working in informal settlements because sometimes as we are addressing the priorities, so say for example mental health, uh, one of the key things within mental health was alcoholism and we have to be very careful uh, not because uh, as as we are dealing with uh, this problem of as we are identifying some of the priorities we noticed we may have you know inadvertently knowingly or, or we may have inadvertently uh, created enemies in quotes or interfered with other people's confidentiality, their privacy, and for some, their livelihood, because there are those people who sell alcohol for as a livelihood. So we had to be very sensitive about how we frame some of the issues and how to approach uh, some of the solutions that we, we identified. So uh, framing, we have to be very adaptable when we are framing problems and solutions and let this come from the participants, but also for us, we also helped in framing how they, uh, they they communicated them. Then this, what I'm about to say, is one of the most important to me because uh, the concept of inattentional blindness came up very strongly. Where we see the marginalized and vulnerable people are hidden in plain sight. So uh, I must commend the government uh, or the Nairobi Metropolitan Services for investing a lot in terms of water, building roads, building uh, hospitals, uh, you know, setting up lights. Uh, but then all these investments are done, but the marginalized and vulnerable people are still invisible. So we focus on some of these big solutions, but then we do not see uh, these uh, child-headed households uh, or that these children heading households, we do not see the persons with disabilities, even the older persons. So say, for example, there's so many new votes uh, within the informal settlements, but then there are no provisions for people with hearing impairments or people who need to use uh, wheelchairs or crutches. So they are very, very good investments, but then we do not see the, the marginalized people. And I, I saw photo voice as a very critical approach for giving 
governance actors uh, and, or the giving the participants a voice uh, to be able to speak out and shed some light uh, that will reduce this inattentional blindness. So I would say I'm a bit more conscious now as a result of participating in Photo Voice, conscious about the plight of uh, these marginalized people. And yeah, I, I see myself uh, being able to incorporate some of these uh, sensitivities or being more conscious whenever we are, I'm participating in any planning uh, or working with government to address uh, some of these things. Because again, there are a lot of intersections between the things that uh, exacerbate marginalizations amongst the groups that we're working with. So, but that's another whole story. And I believe we may have another podcast to talk about intersectionality. Yeah, but let me pause there for now, Kim. Thanks, Robinson. That's a wonderful, really comprehensive answer and, and some key lessons learned there. And I think one of the first ones is to use the structures that are available and to build on those. When you talked about the connections you had with duty bearers, as an organization, LVCT, did you already have those connections or did you have to make them new and kind of seek out new relationships in order to move the project forward? Uh, so for, for me, I would say for the longest time, we've worked mainly in the health sector. So our connect, we had a natural connections with health management teams, but then as a result of photo voice, we are now able to build new relationships with governance actors uh, who we were working with very indirectly in other engagements uh, at community level. But right now, I'm, I'm glad to say we've we formed new uh, networks and uh, yeah, we've really learned how to, to work and understand each other and basically how to frame issues uh, to address things that are not necessarily uh, directly related to health, but then we are also now dealing with broader issues in society that also affect health and well-being, uh, both directly and indirectly. Yeah, so yeah, it's we've got a chance to make new friends and build new networks with governance actors. That's really great to hear. And um, I think for our listeners, sometimes there's a lot of concern about how you kind of connect people with governance actors once research has, has taken place so that action can come out of uh, a research process. And it sounds like there's been a lot of cross-sector learning as well. Just, um, just as we come to the close of this podcast, I would like to understand a little bit about your own personal learning journey through using this kind of progressive research and how your research with extremely marginalized, vulnerable participants has impacted you on a personal level and in relation to your career as well. Oh, yeah, that's that's uh, a, a question that has made me really reflect and look within myself. But I would say I'll come up, come back to the inattentional blindness issues again. Um, one of the things that have changed has changed me as a person would be to to be more sensitive and conscious about uh, you know some of the the marginal the, you know the, the the things that or the factors that make marginalization even worse. Uh, one of them I would say is the is, is is the effect of generational poverty. So I've really come to see how that uh, 
you know, uh, exacerbates marginalization uh, across generations. Uh, the other thing would be about, you know, some of the environments in the informal settlements that really affect the social networks and the capabilities of, of the person. So there's a lot of potential, but then uh, I've seen how the informal settlement uh, context can really be a bottleneck for very brilliant people who have a lot of potential. And we've seen that potential in the course of our work with Photoviz. So one, I'm a bit more conscious about that. And in uh, our advocacy or policy advocacy, uh, I've learned to bring out uh, those those blind spots that sometimes as policymakers or as city managers that we do not see and, and, and you know, that... Uh, that, that really affect the day-to-day -day lives of these marginalized people. So, yeah, it's been a period of real introspection and uh, the reflexivity uh, exercises that we do also really help us to address our, our, our inherent biases or, you know, how we perceive issues. And it's, I would say this journey has been more within uh, as as it is with uh, you know without in terms of our policy advocacy and our research yeah so thank you Kim thanks very much for sharing that I think it's always really nice to hear from researchers how each project they're involved in changes their practice and 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 their own personal perspectives and great to hear that reflexivity has been embedded as part of your project as well. Can you give us just a practical tip on how you do that reflexivity? Is it in a group, individual? Is it written? Yeah, so our, our reflexivity session, those setups are usually very safe. We, we The first thing that we do uh, with researchers, and I'll start with that level, is to ensure that uh, we are all aware that we are, whatever lessons or whatever thoughts that we share are shared in a very confidential space and also a safe space. And the first thing that we do is before every session, we look at our values. Uh, so we speak about the values, both at individual level uh, and the communities we come from and how those values shape our perception of the world. So once we do that, we now talk about specific experiences uh, when we are out conducting uh, you know, our research in, our, in these communities. So uh, people bring out you know, what the experience is and how that relates with their values and you know, talk about some of the things that they were not conscious about initially, but now they are more conscious uh, about at the moment during the reflexivity session. So that has been one way uh, we do it with the core with, with among the research team. Then we've also done reflexivity with our our, our core researchers. And how we do that is basically you go through some of the research outputs, say the photos, and we ask or we can may have very uh, deep conversations with our core researchers on how that has affected or how their values, you know, or how that evidence uh, relates with their values and if there are any conflicts and uh, talk about some of the things that they struggled with uh, in the course of 
their work uh, supporting our participants. So it's usually very informal conversations, uh, but we uh, we also use a very unstructured approach to guide the conversation uh, about our personal values, uh, about our biases, and how that it affects our work. And I would say uh, some through some of these exercises, we're able to identify uh, needs for psychosocial support. So say, for example, in the last few weeks, uh, we've been working with professional counselors uh, to do group sessions uh, with both uh, our researchers and also our co-researchers to identify any needs for psychosocial support. Uh, then our trained counselors also identify needs for individual or one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions based uh, on, on, on what came up in the group psychosocial support sessions. So, yeah, uh, that's how we've gone about our reflexivity. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot just from listening to that process. And it's really admirable that you've built in that support for researchers so that if they do undergo any kind of moral and ethical problems during the research, they have access to support. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, it's been wonderful speaking with you. To end the session, do you have any advice for researchers that want to work in this way, in this participatory action research sort of uh, paradigm? Mm -hmm. Ah, All right. So, <clears throat> Kim, we learned that it's always important to go with an open mind whenever we are initiating any participatory-based approach. Uh, so have a very open mind because sometimes as researchers, we may go to the community with, uh, with, with, with a particular mindset or with objectives that we want to achieve. Because uh, some of, sometimes that is what we put into our, our, our funding proposal. So, uh, we go, sometimes as researchers, we go with a very closed mind. Uh, one of the key lessons is let's open up and let the core researchers, the participants, and the governance actors lead the way. So our role in participatory approaches uh, is mainly to guide the process in terms of providing technical support, uh, because uh, at the end of the day, our main aim is to enhance the capacity of our, uh, you know, of the people in the community or in the informal settlements to be able to use their voice to identify, prioritize, and uh, develop solutions for their priority challenges. Yeah, so that has been the biggest lesson uh, that I've learned. Uh, and again, listening is key. Uh, we need to keep listening, uh, uh, you know, to what our participants are saying, to what our core researchers are saying, and that we were able to learn more uh, through listening more. Thank you. Wonderful advice there. And I think our listeners will get a lot from that. So Robinson, thank you so much for being a wonderful co-host over the last four episodes and for taking the time to also be a guest. Um, we've learned so much throughout the, the last four uh, episodes in this series. Uh, so I can't wait to share it with our listeners and I hope to see you soon. Goodbye for now. Thank you for having me and uh, looking forward to uh, engaging some more. Thank you very much, Kim.